This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, February 5th, 2017, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at restorationroadchurch.com. A couple people uh, have asked in the past, uh, why do you uh, have guys write their prayers ahead of time? That seems kind of mechanical. Uh, And I'll tell you a couple reasons. Number one, it actually, um, it's not so that we make sure they don't say anything crazy. Um, Maybe Aaron, but no, just kidding. Love you, brother. It's so that we can be thoughtful about what we pray ahead of time. It's also so um, some of the guys who are praying can hold it together. Kevin's dad died yesterday, and he was committed to being here to pray. So thank you, Kevin. Um, and it puts in context some of the things that he was praying a little bit differently when you hear that. And so as we pray before the service, before the sermon, um, please be mindful of that, uh, that there are many people, as the song said, in different seasons right now, some more painful and some more joyful than others. And so um, just appreciate that and appreciate you praying today, Kevin. So we're in Genesis 37. We're going through the story of Joseph. Um, I'm going to, we touched on the first half. I'm going to read the second half now and then spend some time uh, focused on uh, what God has to say there. So in Genesis chapter 37, I'm beginning in verse 12, I read the rest of the chapter. And it says this Now his brothers, that being Joseph's brothers, went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come. I'll send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. And so he said to him, Now go see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. And so he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem and a man found him wandering in the fields and the man asked him, What are you seeking? He said, I'm seeking my brothers. He said, Tell me please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, Well, they've gone away. For I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. And they saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes the dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then he'll say, we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we'll see what will become of his dreams. But then Reuben heard it. He rescued him out of their hands, saying, no, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them shed no blood, cast him into this pit here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and cast him into the pit. The pit was empty and there was no water in it. And then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead, and their camels were bearing gum, balm, and myrrh, and their way to carry it down to Egypt. And then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him, and the Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver, and they took Joseph to Egypt." And when Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? 
And they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in blood. And they sent the robe of the many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. This is God's Word. And there are probably 17 different sermons I could preach out of that text. But I'm going to focus on one thing today. So last week we took a giant leap off of the theological high dive as we considered God and all things. Especially His relationship to the bad things that come into our lives. And we learned that in the story of Joseph and in our own lives, despite what we see, despite what we feel, despite what we even can comprehend, God's Word reveals that life is always good because God is always God. Then that doesn't mean that life is always comfortable or painless, but that behind any discomfort or within every pain is meaning. That all things, good or bad, are always in the hands of a good God and always intended for a good purpose. That's a tough truth, but it is true. The story of Joseph, however, is not just about Joseph. As we see, it's about his brothers, and that's where I want to spend our time today. As God sovereignly brings his purposes to pass, Joseph's brothers make very real, very meaningful, but very evil choices through which God works. And the first 11 verses that we read last week provide us insight into what his brothers are feeling and what's motivating them to do the things that they do. We saw last week that the first thing their father did was give Joseph a coat. And after doing that, verse 4 had revealed that when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all the other brothers, they hated him, that being Joseph, and could not speak peacefully or kindly to him at all. Then when Joseph receives his first dream from the Lord and comes and shares it with his brothers, verse 8 revealed that they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And then finally, when Joseph shares his last dream, or the second dream he receives, verse 11 said that his brothers were jealous of him. So slowly you see the brothers' hearts filling up with hatred and resentment and the sin of jealousy or what we'll call envy. And simply defined, envy is Ill will, bad will that's triggered by someone else's good fortune. And it's more than just a desire for better things. Envy is the resentment for the good things that others have. 
And I think envy is actually a bigger problem in our world and likely, sorry, in our own hearts than we will probably ever know or admit. Much like greed, few people believe they struggle with envy. Even though a growing number of people spend a growing amount of their time feasting at an envy factory called social media. And I'm guilty of that as well. It's very much a part of our culture. It's almost hard to avoid it, though some of you stronger few have been able to do just that. But I'm convinced that this particular part of our culture, and certainly others, but this particular part of our culture breeds a lot of envy. It provides an environment that's ripe for voyeurs, if you will, who rather than spend their time living the lives of their own, they watch the lives of other people unfold in pictures and videos and different things. And I find that a number of us, and again, when I say us, I really mean us. I find that a number of us, a growing number, are spending probably an inordinate amount of times comparing more than we are celebrating. And probably a little more sinfully envious than we are righteously encouraged by others' good fortune or the food they're eating that they put pictures up on the blogosphere. And left unchecked, envy has some really harmful consequences. But again, most of us here don't think I'm talking to you. Yeah, someone's probably struggling with this. I'm telling you, this sermon probably hit me more than uh, many others in the recent past, which isn't a good thing. The Bible has uh, some really strong warnings about envy and sinful jealousy. Not only that it's destructive to the relationships with those that we love, but it actually hinders our relationship with the God who truly loves us. In fact, Envy is one of the most powerful forces working against belief in God's sovereignty. Really? Yes. It works against the belief that not only that God is a loving Father and wants to give us His best, but that He is actually a heavenly Father who has the power to do just that. And we find ourselves, I think many of us, so focused on their best, and their best, and their best, that we ignore His best, which is actually our best. But that's not how we see it. So I want to spend some time examining these brothers and what they go through and, and look at the real heart of envy and then maybe caution us a little bit of some signs of envy until we get to the place we say, here's how to fix it all. And you know that's going to Jesus, but we'll get there. So what is at the heart of envy? What is, what is the sin behind the sin? As the story unfolds, Jacob sends um, Joseph on a really long journey. It's probably 60 plus miles. It would take many days or several days at least. And that knowing you know, these are 10, he's 17, Joseph, so these brothers are all older than him. So these are 10 strong young men. I don't think safety is probably what dad's really concerned about. 
But he does send the one son that he seems to trust to check on the welfare of the ten sons that he maybe doesn't. And we've already been told that his brothers are unable to say a single kind word to him. And it's not like Joseph hasn't picked that up. It's not like he doesn't know that he's hated. And yet when his father asks him to do what's likely a pretty uncomfortable and undesirable thing, while tempting perhaps to reject it as dad, this is not a good idea. These brothers are not going to like seeing me. He is obedient. He doesn't question his dad at all and he goes on a mission to seek out the welfare of those who don't love him. That sounds familiar. Namely, Jesus. But after 60 miles of traveling, he's coming over the hills and his brothers have their first of three conversations about what they're going to do. And their words, if you listen carefully, reveal exactly what's going on in their heart. The very first words that they say, oh, here comes the dreamer. Here comes the dreamer. You remember that Joseph experienced two dreams. They basically had the same message, and namely that Joseph would rule over his brothers and the whole family would worship him. That kind of bugged the brothers a little bit. I don't know if they are bugged just by the news or bugged by Joseph's excitement. They are bugged. So the brothers plan to murder their younger brother. And we read this and we kind of go, oh, I know Ten brothers plan, because of dreams shared, to kill their younger brother. They plan murder. And they're all in on it. Yes, Reuben later speaks up, the oldest. But they plan very elaborate. We're going to murder him. We're going to throw him in a pit. And then we'll fool and lie to dad. After discussing their plan, their words again reveal their heart. Then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. Now, here comes the dreamer. We're going to kill him, shove him in a pit, hide the body. And then we'll see what comes of his dreams. They're very focused on the dreams. The ones that were reported by Joseph, but given by God. And whether Joseph which we, it seems to be he does believe that these dreams are going to come to pass, the brothers are taking them very seriously. Now, when bad things come into our lives, in time, I think many of us, some of us, can arrive at the place where Job does where Job who says the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord, I do believe even in the hardest of hardships, we can get to that place. And many do. But it seems like our trust in the Lord, our blessed be the name of the Lord, is threatened when we begin to see others prosper. Especially where we have not. That seems to make it a little more difficult. The seeds of envy, I believe, begin with just bad feelings. You're not trying to generate these feelings, right? Feelings often just 
come upon us, if I, if I show you a picture and say, hey, look at this beautiful ocean, and go, how does it make you feel? And you go, oh, fresh. And I go, nope, that's wrong. Well, it can't be wrong, right? It's a feeling. You can react to those feelings wrongly. But when we see others' good fortune, at times we start to... But envy can go from a seed to a very poisonous root in our lives when we begin to set our minds and our eyes and our focus on other people that we feel are better or better off than we are. And that's just what the brothers are doing. Nothing's come to pass yet. But they're living out as if these dreams are reality right now. As if they are less than. As if they are worshiping their younger brother. And so believing that Joseph's rise is going to mean their fall, the brothers are resentful of the circumstances they find themselves in. They are jealous of all that Joseph has because he does have a coat. He has the love of dad. They are are jealous of what he is going to have. And they are not simply angry, though, at the circumstances or even just merely at Joseph himself. You see, this kind of sinful jealousy, envy, is, is not merely resentment towards circumstances or certain people. At the heart... It's resentment toward the one responsible for those circumstances. And who did we learn last week is responsible for all circumstances? It's resentment towards God. They're angry with God. They're angry with what God is seemingly going to bring about. The brothers are unwilling to take the place that God has assigned them in the world. A place that God has assigned them in the world. Envy causes us to believe, if left unchecked, pretty quickly that life is unfair, that God is unfair, and that God is doing for others what He is supposed to be doing for us. That could be related to health, that could be related to wealth, That could be related to career, to regard, to success, to all kinds of different things. The fact that that person has an amazing family and I don't. They have a great marriage and I don't. They have a wonderful job and I don't. At the root of envy is a heart that is resentful toward God, that is hateful toward Him, and that ultimately rejects the place that God has assigned. Now, as I said earlier, many of us are blind to envy. At least blind to our own blindness. But there are some signs that that point to like, okay, maybe this is a problem. Now, throughout my entire ministry, which is 11 plus years, not a long time, right? But throughout that entire time, I have met with a lot of people informally, formally, groups, individuals, couples, all kinds. And in that time, no one has ever confessed to me that they struggle with greed. No one. 
I could poke on it and get there, but no one's ever said, hey, I just wanted to meet because I struggle with greed. I think I'm just too greedy. Never had that. I think I give too much, right? I spend too much for the Lord and bless too many people. Never. I've never had anyone come in and say, I think I'm slothful and lazy. Never. Never sit down. I'm just here because I need some counsel because I feel like I'm a real sluggard. Never happened. I've also never had anyone come in and tell me that they struggle with envy. Never. I like my life. It's good. Yeah. Liar. The brothers are at the, at the simplest level not satisfied. They don't want what God wants for them. And so they decide that we're, they're going to take matters into their own hands. And as they take matters into their own hands, they are working against God's decrees. Right? They are working against what God has said is going to happen. Actively so. And this has happened before, right? Where, where an individual or a group of people kind of place themselves at the center of the universe rather than the Lord. And they try to arrange the planets in such a way to make it work for themselves. It happened at the Tower of Babel. Remember that? God said, be fruitful, fill the earth. And they're like, no, we're all going to stay right here. And we're going to build a tower to worship ourselves. And God said, yeah, I don't think so. And disperses them. By refusing to accept God's place, this is what the brothers are doing. Right? They, they actively, and I would say passively, they've already done it in their brains, but now they actively work to dethrone God. To assume power and to begin to rearrange the circumstances to create a new and different future. Right? How many of us have ever said, I just want something different? We'll get to that. Because your idea different is whack. But we'll get to that. Let's put that on the shelf. Idea of difference, whack. Okay, live there. But the root of envy, right? If it's the rejection of God's circumstances, the fruit begins to be a fight to change them. I'm going to change these circumstances. That's the fruit. You begin to see it. And... It is an infectious, poisonous root. Resentment. Very well-known verse, Hebrews 12.15. has a warning saying, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Right, that idea of the root, it may be small and slow in its growth, but it carries a poison that is malignant and dangerous and must be taken seriously because it will spread. This kind of sin in your life, envy, must be diligently rooted out or the Bible says many will be defiled. Like we kind of like, yeah, I'm a little greedy. You ever seen pastors come up, which I've seen it before, and, and if I ever do it, send me an email. It's like the idea, you know, I struggle with pride. Like, what? Right? Like, if I came up and said, like, yeah, I'm just kind of greedy. I'm just kind of a greedy person. Pray for me, right? I'm working through that. It's like, whoa. Like, we, we, we look at sin like this, like, that's oh, just like no big deal. This little thing. Just a little bit of cancer. Right? Just a little bit of coveting. Like, just start piling those sins up. Just a little bit of 
anger, just a little bit of wrath, just a little bit of abuse, just a little bit of selfishness. What's a little bit? What's a little bit of poison in your cup? And all that to say, like, I don't expect us to ever experience perfection and full sanctification in this life in our flesh. But we're so dismissive of things like envy that I think that we're in danger of its destructive power. The Proverbs say, Proverbs 27.4, wrath is cruel, anger is overwhelming, but who can stand before jealousy? Like, this is a major one. Now, few of us, I think, can ever be, you know, ever imagine being controlled by envy because, again, you look at Joseph's brothers, there has to be some level of just overwhelming control of their flesh because they have taken what is, I see my brother get a coat and dad loves him more. That bugs me. He's telling us his dreams. That bugs me. Let's kill him. Like, it seems to be like a leap, like a pretty big, like, that's pretty serious. Like, yeah, let's, let's like tie him up and, you know, blindfold him and beat him. Like, like what? Like, okay, I can maybe, maybe get that, but like, let's kill him. Let's hide the body. Let's lie about his death. He'll be gone forever. Wow, that, that seems to be someone who's controlled by something powerful. One writer put it this way, speaking of sinful jealousy, he says it's tyrannical, it's catastrophic, it's metaphysical, it feels controlling and you cannot escape. It feels as if every particle of self-control you have in your entire being is being vaporized in one fell emotional swoop. It brings people to the end of themselves in a millisecond and they are no longer the same people. That sounds like what's happened to his brothers here. It takes over and it, and it causes us to feel and to do, I think, regretful things. And the signs of envy are subtle. And I do think eventually the brothers get to this place, but oftentimes we don't see it until after we've thrown our brother in the pit. Here's some of the signs that we should consider. And this is, this is just what the brothers experience. The first is a sign of hatred in your life. I don't hate. Really? We may not kill people with our hands, but I would argue that we murder people all the time with our words or thoughts and our looks. Jesus is the one that compares hatred to murder, as does the Apostle John. Because we're not satisfied with our own circumstances, we begin to make enemies of those who look like they are. We need something to blame for our pain. And what happens is this begins to breed rivalries in your heart and in your life. Again, maybe not you're not actively like, I'm competing with you. It's not like that. But there is a level of tension and, and hatred towards those you feel like are doing the same thing. I'll give you a little insight. I think pastors ever experience that? I think pastors ever play the compare game with other pastors? See, when I was an English teacher in my own little English room where I didn't see any other teachers, no one ever podcasted my language arts lessons, right? You know, right now, I can look on Genesis 37 and see 25 pastors who preached that sermon 
at 25 bigger churches than ours. What do you think that does to me? Not all good things. Rivalries, divisions, dissensions, those feelings coming up. Anything but unity and love. And as we see with Joseph's brothers, those who give themselves over to their envious heart are seldom satisfied unless things get worse for whomever they envy. Did you know that? It's interesting. If things get better for you, that's not as satisfying when you have envy as much as someone's getting worse. Another sign is just simply unkindness. That seems like, oh, unkindness. That's the random acts of kindness. You know what unkindness looks like? It's when you begin to focus primarily on the faults and the failures of other people. That's all you can see. It's all that comes up when you talk about that person. It's all that comes up when you think about that person or people. Because all you can see is what you don't have and perhaps what they do. You notice they said the brothers could not speak a kind word. It's not would not. It's not did not. It's they could not. They couldn't speak a peaceful, kind word to Joseph. Not a word. I think those who are trapped by envy cannot speak a complimentary or encouraging word to or about others very often. So if you find yourself as a not very encouraging person, it might be a sign of something. That was a very convicting truth for me because I struggle with that. No one's going to describe Sam Ford as super encourager. And I have to ask myself, why is that? Why is that? Not why don't describe me, why don't I encourage? Because I know it's true. Instead, many of us, instead of showing kindness, we basically slander people and call it being honest. I'm just telling the truth. Or we gossip, call it jokey. Some of it's aggressive and hot. Most of it's passive-aggressive and unkind. Another sign, it's only two more, is indifference. You know, we become so focused on what we don't have or what others do, we, we change in two different ways. First, we become blind to the needs of those who are crying out for help. You know what happened? If you skip ahead to Genesis 42.21, it describes the brothers' regret. Because they're now suffering, and they're like connecting the dots. Like, we're suffering because we put Joseph in the pit, and we ignored his cries, it says. You notice in Genesis 37, what they did right after they put him in the pit? Had lunch. So as they're eating lunch... Joseph's like, let me out of this empty pit with no water or food. Just complete indifference. Complete indifference. And some of us aren't that cold. I realize that. It comes in a different way. Sometimes we get so focused on our self-pity party 
that we subconsciously or consciently do this. We celebrate other suffering. Oh, I don't do that. Okay. I bet you're guilty of this one. We suffer in their celebration. When things go well for them, you ever had that experience? As a pastor, I've never had that experience. Right. When I hear about the success of something, and you go, that's great. Praise God. Right? Or you, you just, you're hating your job, and then someone comes up, I got a promotion, I'm getting this. You're like, I'm so happy for you. That's fantastic. Right? That can come out too. I would, I would argue that there's a lot, of, a lot to learn by your responses to other people's success, especially in areas where you haven't had it. What's coming out? What are you feeling? And are you being honest with that? Because that's the last one, sign of deception. That's what his brothers clearly do, right? They deceive. We deceive and we are deceived. We lie to ourselves and to others about what we're feeling, what we're thinking, and what we're doing. We go and to great lengths to be creative to cover up our sin, if we even call it sin. Without doubt, the brothers lied to their father about what happened to Joseph, but not before they lied to themselves about something different being better. Remember that different thing? Oh, let's take that off the shelf. See, the brothers at the core, they desired different circumstances so much that they were willing to sin and to bring it about. And we imagine that. Everyone, every age gets to this place. At different places, in different seasons, in different contexts, we imagine that, you know what? If I was in a different place, things would be better. If I was in a different town, if I was in a different church, if I had a different spouse, a different family, different kids, a different job, life would be better. The problem with that kind of reasoning is that no matter where you live, no matter what you do, or you worship, you marry, or work, there's one thing that never changes. You! You. Let me give you a little secret that's just going to go, oh. well, that's what it did to me. Maybe it won't, because maybe you're much more righteous than I am. Our circumstances don't create envy. They reveal it. They reveal it. The problem is internal, it's not external. God calls us to love. He shows us what it looks like in Christ. And He calls us to compassion. He calls us to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. And He calls us to live in the light and to speak the truth. So if you find yourself focused on what other people have, indifferent towards others' needs, unable to speak joyfully about them or to them, and lying to yourself about it all, you're probably struggling with envy. Because that's what the brothers did. So what's the cure, right? What's the fix? The brothers believe that if they 
kill or otherwise remove Joseph from the situation. That's, that's the fix. They'll have life. But changing the circumstances by getting rid of Joseph was not going to take the feeling away. It only makes it worse. Proverbs 14.30 tells us, A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Makes the bones rot. Freedom from resentment for the place that God has you is not found in a change of circumstances, but in a change of heart. And unfortunately, heart contentment doesn't come very naturally to us. In fact, our hearts are naturally prone towards sinful jealousy. At the heart of our jealousy is this. It's a rejection of the place that God has assigned you right now. And at the heart of that rejection is pride. What do I mean by that? We question in our pride whether this is truly God's best. As we look at what we believe is God's better for me, represented by what that person has or that person has or doesn't have. And the solution to our problem is not prayer that God will free us from our circumstances. The solution to our problem is not more liberty. It's actually more humility. We must get our eyes off of ourselves, off of our brothers, off of our circumstances, and set them on our God who is above. I think it's best encapsulated by a passage from the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 5. In 1 Peter chapter 5, he says this with a little bit of my commentary. Humble yourselves. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that in the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Do you, do you know who God is? Who are we to question the plan or power of mighty God? As he told Job, who if anyone had reason to maybe complain a little bit, and maybe though not justified, justifiable envy of like, that looks a lot better than my horrible situation. What does God say to him? Dress for action like a man, and I will question you and make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong, Job? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God, and can you thunder a voice like this? We need to understand that God, Almighty God, cares for us. And to recognize that what we have and what we don't have is from the Lord. But then Peter continues and says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, the most prideful creature ever created, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour what is, he, what is he doing? Is he just pounding on us? Mm, 
yeah, sure, that's happening, but I think he's attacking us often from the inside out through our pride. He is tempting us to doubt God's goodness and to doubt God's greatness and to doubt God's grace, to be prideful and to question that God is actually a loving Father who wants the best for us and a Heavenly Father who has the power to make it happen. So, Peter says, resist Him. Firm in your faith. Knowing I'm so alone in this. This is so unique. You don't get it. The same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You're not alone in this experience or in your feelings. And lastly, verse 10, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. I'll close with this. The Bible reveals that God is a loving Father who wants to give us His best. And that He is a God who has the power to ensure His best is always given. And the closer we are to Christ, the more we draw into Him the more you're strengthened by the one who, when Philippians 2 says, he came down and became a man and took on human flesh, he did not see equality as something to be grasped. Let it go. The closer you are to Christ, I believe, less we will question whether we are experiencing God's best and the more we'll be ready to receive what the Lord gives, to rejoice with what He withholds, and to release what He takes away. Believing as Peter did, trusting as Peter did, that one day He will restore all that I have truly lost and establish all that I have truly desired. Let us take comfort as we come this morning to the communion table where we recognize that Jesus Christ came, died, was broken for us so that we could enjoy the wondrous, beautiful, pure relationship with God through faith in what He had done for us. But let us remember that learning that is, learning to be content is just that, it's a learning thing. And Paul, when he says in Philippians 4, the great verse that is always misquoted, I can do all things that Christ who strengthens me. If you rewind, here's what he says. I have learned in whatever situation to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstances. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We're each in different places, I recognize that. But don't be tempted to look at someone else or somewhere else believing that your best is somewhere else because the Lord has you exactly where you are. And sometimes those discontent moments of life are to help us learn what it truly means to be content in Christ and lean into His strength and not your own. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for 
all that you have taught us through Joseph and through his brothers, Lord. And I pray that we'll be a people who will be honest about what we feel as we are tempted to play the comparison game with those around us, question, or tempted, Lord, to question whether you are actually giving us our best because there looks like there's something better somewhere else. Father, do not let our hearts wander into pride. Do not let our hearts wander into resentment against you and the place you have assigned us, but help us to embrace it. Help us to be strengthened in the pain, in the poverty, in the thing that we don't have or the thing that we never wanted and do have. Help us, Father, to trust you. Help us to be strengthened by Christ who took an incredibly low position and made himself nothing that we might become something. Let us find our strength in him. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.